Um, what's interesting is I just realized that um, I preached last week on living well, and, and this week I'm, I'm going to preach on dying well in light of the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. But this weekend is also Halloween, so it's kind of wild there. Um, and some of the, the artwork and stuff that I even chose, I guess that was subconsciously in the back of my mind. But we've been in Matthew, if you're new here, we've been preaching through the gospel of Matthew and seeing how Matthew wants us to realize and understand that Jesus is king, Jesus is the answer for life, Jesus reigns out of what we say an upside down kingdom, or really it's because we view his kingdom upside down. Reality of what he says and does is the proper lens for viewing things here on earth and for eternity. So I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, but I'm going to pair uh, that with Mark chapter 5. And I love how the scriptures speak and defend themselves. And so I can read the synoptic gospels, is what they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they, they basically just continue the thread. And so that's what I'll have up for you this evening. As Matthew's account, it's pretty, it's pretty brief in chapter 9 compared with Mark and Luke. So I'm going to pick up reading in Mark where Matthew leaves off. All right, fam? So Mar uh, Matthew chapter 9 starting in verse 18 and Mark 5.26, that's where we're going to uh, be. Matthew 9.18, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Since she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. This is where I jump into Matthew 5, 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Verse 31, you, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, the brother of James. 
when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother, the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up, began walking around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So as I said in the beginning, we continue our discussion from last week. And the Gospels want you to feel the tension, especially just, I don't know if you if you've read how Mark wrote it. He, he wants you to feel the emotion. They want you to see the movement just kind of swirling around Jesus. Right, there's crowds listening, there's commotion and conversation bustling about. There are people pressing in, and quickly things shift from controversy and questions to real-life concerns and pain. Matthew says, while he was saying this, Basically, coming off last week's conversation, Jesus answering John's disciples about fasting, right? He's answering the question there. It says, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. Again, crowds, hustling, bustling. He didn't jump in and say, hey, hey, Peter, can you tell Jesus when he's done with that point, like, I need to talk to him? No, he went in. There was no excuse me moment, sir, just a word of despair. In, in this childlike dependency, he said, Jesus, I need you. My daughter has just died. Can you feel the weight a little bit more? Darkness, the heartache, the change in the atmosphere. Have you ever been in a place of such darkness or despair that the only thing you could do is just cry out, Jesus, I need you. The most recent uh, a, a piece of that was when my son Judah was born only 11 months ago, and I remember we were with the midwives, and like a light switch, everything just became heavy and dark. And the midwives looked at me in the eye and said, we've got to go to the hospital. And in that moment, I had nothing else to do but say, Jesus, I need you. There's a difference here. This isn't happy and joyous screams and shouts from my wife trying and doing her best. No, something is different here. And we shifted to the hospital so the doctors can assist. And the question that came to my mind was, will I trust God in whatever decision Jesus is going to make this evening? My son's life in the balance. But will I trust Jesus and that he is good? And look at this father's faith. His daughter is dead, and he says, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. His, his faith moves Jesus. 
So much so, Jesus leaves his current place there to this man's house. And it's amazing what a broken spirit and submissive spirit, how it speaks to the heart of God. Then I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon of the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I asked myself, would I trust Jesus in that? Lord, I need you. Praise God, Judah was born. He's great. It's been a wonderful 11 months, but was I willing to trust him? in that moment so jesus makes his move his disciples and the dad head out to his house jarius we see is his name but again mid-journey in conversation jesus's flow is interrupted with the heaviness of someone's broken world a woman with a hemorrhaging illness needs jesus so that's what we get in verse 20. just then as they're walking just then A woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Notice the difference in how these two people approach Jesus. The man comes directly face-to-face with Christ, right, face-to-face there. But the woman, in shame and secrecy, just wants to touch his cloak. But I love it because both of them have faith to go to Jesus. If I can just touch the hem of his garment... And verse 29 says, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt it in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, culturally speaking, a woman being so direct and approaching a teacher would have been at the very least a no-no. But a woman in her condition with her illness would have been shunned. She was unclean. We read about the Levitical law in Leviticus 15. She was unclean due to her bleeding, and she would have made anyone else she touched unclean. And so anybody else that she touched would not have been allowed in the temple. So in secrecy, she knows her position and isn't causing a fuss, but she wants to touch the edge of his garment in hope. So what does Jesus do? Verse 30 of Mark chapter 5. At once Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched me? Hmm. And I love this because the tone is not angry, but it's with compassion. It's sincerity, and there's an intent about Jesus that Jesus is about to do his Jesus thing. And so he says, who touched me? And in the midst of that honest moment, the disciples go and says, "Um, hey, Jesus, Luke tells us it was Peter. And he says, "Uh, you see the people crowding around you? And yet you're kind of asking who's touching me? 
Yet the disciples are just oblivious and lacking in understanding, as honestly a lot of us are sometimes when interacting with Christ and reading the scriptures. Here's another kind of question that came out of me is, is, have you ever had an encounter with Jesus that was so private that others have no understanding? Like, that's a cool story, bro, but like, what does that mean? It's kind of what's happening here. But 32, verse 32 out of, Matthew, out of Mark chapter 5 says this, But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He kind of just stops. Again, not angry. But with compassion. With sincerity, with an intent. And again, who touched me. And he waited there, and then the woman, knowing it happened, she, she could feel it, she knows it happened, she came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And Jesus says, with all eyes on the two of them, verse 34, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In full Jesus fashion, he stops and he wants people to pay attention. Who touched me? He says it loud enough for people to hear, but gentle enough for the person to know that she is safe. And in the awkward tension, he waits. Because his patience and his grace allows for a person in shame to come out of the shadows and the darkness and into his light and love and protection. Jesus is in no rush. He is gentle. He's sincere. He draws attention to the woman not to call her out. He doesn't even tell the people what her her issue is. But once she speaks up in full discretion and compassion, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus, I love this. He takes it one step further. This is what Matthew wants us to understand. Jesus honors this woman and elevates her dignity. And then he does the same with the little girl that we're going to read. He honors this little girl and elevates her dignity. This teacher, this man that claims to be God is focused on a little girl and a woman. People that society didn't even pay attention to. People that were on the fringe of society. A girl that died? Well, Jesus, she's not even the heir to the household. So why are you paying attention? A woman who is sick? Like, Lord, she can't even vote. She has no say. Why are you paying attention? Have you ever felt so alone like no one understands? I hope you sit here and you picture yourself in that moment and realize that Jesus is there patiently waiting, intently, compassionately waiting for you to speak up. Jesus came for the sick, those who aren't being loved, those who who have seemed to be forgotten. Jesus says, I see you, I hear you, I am willing to heal you. I'm here for you. 
Now, coming off the previous conversations and interactions that we've read through Matthew before getting here in chapter 9, Jesus has been telling the Pharisees and John's disciples and other leaders, and honestly, I think even some of us here today, that we have been missing the point. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Meaning, don't be so focused and caught up on just knowing the right things or having the proper doctrine that you don't properly love people. Don't be so focused on being right that we treat people wrong. So Jesus is saying, this is the new way. See others. Be there for others. Allow for the interruptions of life even when you're on the go and on mission, so that you can implement and and present people with kingdom principles, kingdom principles of freedom and grace. Jesus loves the outcasts of society. He elevates them in dignity. He extends his goodness, his beauty, his strength. Last week, I, I talked about kingdom simplicity of freedom and grace. And in this passage here, Jesus adds compassion and dignity into dire circumstances of life, death and disease. This woman gets her freedom from shame. She gets healing by grace, love by compassion. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now remember, this interaction occurs while Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. So Jesus is still on mission, but he stopped for this moment. Mark tells us, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of the synagogue leader. He said, your daughter is dead. Don't even bother the teacher anymore. So things are still in motion. There's still tension within the tension, high emotions. But Jesus is composed and in control. And look at his care and attention to love and and, and to love with detail. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, told him, Jairus, don't be afraid just believe. So, like, imagine yourself in this moment. And just imagine what this man is thinking. He's like, Jesus, my daughter's on her deathbed or potentially dead. I've just told you what's going on, and you stop to heal somebody. Jesus, the, the woman is alive. I, I, like, I need you now. Couldn't this wait? And Jesus puts this father's heart at ease. He senses Jairus' waning faith, and he encourages with him with, don't be afraid, just believe. Back to, back to, to, to Judah and the hospital. I remember like the, the, the EMTs coming where we have to leave Mount Pleasant to cross over the bridge uh, to get to MUSC, and they load Sarah up, and they don't move. And I'm sweating, anxious. I've grabbed all the things. I don't even know if I have everything. I told her, I'll come back in the morning, throw it in a car, and I'm waiting. And they're not moving. 
and I yell at the driver, let's go. What are you waiting for? Can you imagine the father there? And Jesus, I imagine, like in Jesus' fashion, he looks the father in his eyes. Don't be afraid. I got you. Just believe. Jesus is never rushed, and he is always on time. And so they came to the house of the synagogue leader. Jesus saw the commotion with people crying and wailing, and he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And he puts them out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. As I read the stories of Christ I know that all the chaos Jesus encounters, he always calms the storms. He arrives to Jairus' house and there's noise and chaos of mourners and musicians. And Jesus, like he calmed the storm in chapter 8 of Matthew, he calmed this storm in the house. And he turned the noise into laughter, and I'm going to say kind of nervous laughter. But they laughed because they couldn't comprehend. They didn't perceive. Jesus, what do you mean she's sleeping? Don't you know we're the professional funeral procession? Like, we know death. And Jesus says, yeah, but you don't know me. Jesus is both Lord of the living and the dead. Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus defeats death and disease because he is the answer for death and disease. So just like the disciples were astonished at the calming of the storm in chapter 8, here they are astonished once more at the calming of the storms in their hearts and the atmosphere, and the little girl is raised to life. Have you ever been afraid of death? It's understandable. It's understandable because death is an intruder. Have you ever been frustrated with illness and sickness and disease? Disease is a thief. But Jesus wants us to know that he is the answer and is willing to save us from death and the disease of sin. And so we see these little examples of Jesus healing and ministering to people, but they're a bigger picture of the sin and death that's happening within all of us without him as savior of our lives. Death and disease bring shame. It separates us from others. It separates us, though, from God. It brings despair and heartache. And Jesus, in this whole journey, is showing us that he has come with good news, that he has come to bring life, to bring healing, to bring us back into a right relationship with the Father. And so these two examples of Jesus' ministry tell us that we are the outcasts of society. We are the outcasts of the kingdom of heaven. 
We have illness that drives us away. We are sentenced to death, but God. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we no longer have to be isolated. We no longer have to be afraid. Now, yes, we still die a physical death. Because physical death is still a consequence of our sin. It's a consequence of our rebellion against God. Death, uh, disease is a consequence of sin and this fallen world. Did Jesus heal the woman? Absolutely. She still died. Did Jesus raise this 12-year-old girl from uh, the dead? Absolutely. But eventually she died. And so he wants us to understand that his power is limitless and that he has conquered this intrusion and this thief of life once and for all on the cross and that is coming to completion upon his return and uniting heaven and earth and so what Jesus is doing is that he's drawing our hearts and our understanding from earthly things here to eternal things some of you know Therese Termina she lived well, and she died well. And I was privileged and honored to be with her the week before she went into hospice. And I remember we were having a conversation with a gentleman, and I don't know how it happened, except it was a God thing, because when we went to meet with him, there was nobody else around. And she said, you know, I'm going to meet Jesus. I don't know how she knew this. I don't know if the Lord was speaking to her, but she knew something was up and she had, she was in her last days. And she said, I'm going to meet Jesus. I need you to know one thing. I need you to know about my sweet Jesus. And she presented the gospel to this guy. She lived well and she died well. And I know the stories because I've spoken to her husband, Sal of how she laid in the bed in hospice and with the nurses coming through every single time she said, can I tell you about my Jesus? See, in our society, we don't really handle death well. It, it, like, it's, it's almost a foreign concept, right? Like, it happens in hospitals and hospice or to, like, really old people. We, we see the reactions, we understand the reactions, right, during the pandemic. When the world shut down, we're, we're honestly, we're still dealing with the anxiety of it all. Two years later, maybe some of you are as well. But here's the lesson from these two testimonies and from Teresa's testimony is that when death is brought from the periphery to the focus of life's natural progression, an acknowledgement of sin's consequence, we then understand the power and the beauty of Jesus' gospel. See, understanding death allows us to understand the good news that while death and disease has intruded into life, 
by our rebellion against God, Jesus as the giver of life has stepped into creation, not just to face death, but defeat it. And so from the beginning of chapter 9, we see that even good things won't last and fully satisfy. The paralyzed man with his friends, they didn't last or satisfy. Uh, Levi or Matthew's uh, testimony of how God changed his life, right? Money, position, prestige, it doesn't last or satisfy. Jesus and the, and the Pharisees, Jesus and John's disciples, Jesus and leaders, right? He's telling us that religion or good deeds won't last or satisfy. The legacy of youth and children like this 12-year-old girl and family won't last and satisfy. Longevity of life through even good health and even better medicine like the woman with the issue of blood. She, she, it says that she gave everything and she still was getting worse. It won't last and satisfy, which is why I read like Paul's words and he says, almost like in this stress-asked question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And almost like with a sigh of relief, Jesus. Jesus. Because life is so much more than the temporary it's about having a, an eternal and, and heavenly perspective. Jesus is the liberator and fulfillment of life, the forgiver of sins, the savior from death. His authority extends the whole of creation and life. Christ died and was raised from the dead so that he is Lord over the living and the dead, proving that while the consequences of sin is death, it does not have the last say. So I love these testimonies. I love Teresa's testimony. She lived well and she died well. She believed that there was victory in embracing her death while embracing her sweet Jesus who carried her over the threshold and she wanted people to know it. Living well allows us to die well. I want to quote Matthew McCullough. He wrote a book called Remember Death. He said, the gospel offers a liberating, life-giving alternate to denial and despair. We must hear and accept the statement death and disease makes about who we are before we can fully rejoice in the message of the gospel. This is what he says. He says, death says we are less important than we've ever allowed ourselves to believe. But the gospel says we are far more loved than we've ever imagined. We are not too important to die, but you are important enough that God gave his only begotten son. So that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. And so family, we are not defined by death, but by King Jesus the giver of life, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Will you allow his unconditional love to just wait patiently so you can speak up and trust him? Will you trust him by how you fight the sin in your life? 
Will you trust him with how you fight to love others as he did? Because there's so much more to life than just this and what meets the eyes. The consequence of sin is death, but it does not have the last say. What fears are you holding on to or what fears are holding you back from trusting in King Jesus? Hopefully you got these little cards here. What I did was I I wrote out some reflections on our outward interactions. Here's what I'm I'm, I'm leaving with you, and I hope you you pray through it. I hope you work through it. I hope you you talk about it in your community groups with a friend over coffee or, or dinner, whatever it is. But by remembering death, we understand the gospel of Jesus. And if this is the first time you're hearing this, let's have a conversation, you and I. But here's some outward interactions. First and foremost, have you made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life? That, that's, that's the question for the night. Where do you stand with Christ? Then we can move on to who is God calling you to love and serve? Where are you serving? How are you serving? See, Jesus treats everyone with honor and dignity. So how do we approach and interact with others that society deems as fringe or other? You really want to get, like, get into it? Ask Jesus to reveal your own biases. The, the, yeah, but, or the, they should have, or they brought this on themselves type of people that you need to love and embrace. But the heart speaks that there's always an excuse as to why we don't. Especially coming off of last week, what standards are you holding over others that block the way to Jesus' unconditional love? And then reflecting on our inward interactions, and I've adapted this from Pastor Rich Velotis and his book, The Deeply Formed Life, he, he asked these questions. What am I feeling? Especially with like this message you just heard, but like, what am I feeling? Maybe about death, disease, guilt, shame, frustration, this Jesus. What is the story I'm telling myself when I don't get things right the first time? Are you believing lies about yourself? What does the gospel say about what I am feeling and who I am? Because Jesus wants to meet you with full sincerity and compassion. You're safe. With Jesus, you're safe. And you are loved. He's waiting patiently for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I don't know where everyone is this evening in their walk and and, and just time with you, but Lord, will you meet them here in sincerity, compassion? Father, will will you speak into their hearts now, Holy Spirit, uh, lift the veil so that they know that you are the answer.
for all of life's ills. Father, that you want to have a conversation and a, a relationship with us. That you want to know us in and out. That you want to be our friend. And then, Jesus, will you find us obedient and faithful, living well so that we can die well. And live a life that honors and reflects your kingdom, who you are, Jesus. And the, the message of freedom, grace, and liberation that you have for a dark and fallen world. Thank you, Jesus, for your unconditional love. We pray all these things in Christ's sweet name. Amen.